Welcome, podcast pickers. It's Toby Haydock's Who's Round, and for once, I'm taking requests. Well, listen, I do value the nice feedback I sometimes get on the internet, and one early advocate and morale booster was David Steele, and it's his birthday today, and I hinted uh, to David that I was interviewing this next gentleman, and he got very excited, because um, I think he's a big fan and would like to hear what my next victim has to say. And it's David's birthday today, so I've hooked this one forward in the schedule as a birthday treat for David, because... He's often said nice things online when I've wanted to hear them or read them. Uh, so happy David Day. No, happy birthday. Da- happy David Day, birthday boy. Um, and enjoy this interview. It's a good one. Well, welcome. Um, chronologically, I've recently interviewed Zoe Wanamaker. And so very appropriately, I've met my next interviewee in the sunny environs of the Globe Theatre where he has worked an awful long, uh, an awful number, a fair number of times, but it was a swampy path to get there. So I'm going to ask him who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Uh, I'm Philip Bird. You're talking to me about Doctor Who because just my first job on national television was playing a green swampy <laughs> in the, uh, the story The Power of Kroll, which was, I think, the fifth part of The Key to Time. And we filmed it in September and October 1978, I think it might have gone out early 79. And it's an interesting one because you've had a great career, and which we will talk about after we've uh, touched down on Delta Magna. But uh, I was always told as a young actor, don't do extra work, you'll get pigeonholed. But you are an uncredited supporting artiste, but it didn't hold, hold you back. Well, that's very good. But, uh, you're absolutely right. Um, I, was in, I was living in Norwich. I'd been in a band for two years, um, a, a new wave band, which didn't uh, hit the big time. Uh, but before that, I'd got my equity card. But I still wanted to be in a band and see what happened. So I was living in Norwich. We were, we were, um, we were actually Norfolk's premier new wave band, according to the Eastern Evening News. Used to go up and down the A11 uh, every week to places like the Marquee and the National and the Red Cow, most of which aren't there now. And then the call went out uh, late in, in autumn 78. The band had just about broken up, fizzled out. Uh, for equity members in the area to come and be supporting artists extras on Doctor Who. And uh, there weren't many of us, you know, maybe, I don't know, um, or maybe, I don't know, certainly four of us were there, uh, no, more than four. Um, and so I went along and did it, I was, I mean, being Doctor Who, of course, who wouldn't? Mm. Uh, and then uh, we were on location in uh, Snape, uh, the, near the Maltings, in the marshes there. And then uh, a couple of us were asked, would we like to come down to Television Centre and also do some of the, be in the studio and do the rest, rest of it. And of course, I was absolutely doubly thrilled. Um, slightly surprised because I died, I'd already died at least once. I died in <laughs> episode two when a gun went off in my face, one of the guns that Rome Dutt had given us, the dodgy ones which fired out of the wrong end or something, or maybe I was pointing it towards my face, being a primitive swampy, obviously. Anyway, I died. Um, but I was I was watching it again, and uh, five minutes later, I'm seen escorting <laughs> escorting Glen Owen somewhere else. So um, these swampies obviously had the power of regeneration, just like the Doctor. Um, so I was delighted to come back down. Uh, so I then went to Television Centre, um, 
And maybe they invited me to do it because they could see that I was keen and sort of, it wasn't just for me just a day's work standing around. I was really well into it, chanting for Kroll and stabbing people and looking frightened. And, and then the makeup woman, Kaziah DeWin, to whom I'm entirely forever grateful, said, if you, do you want to be an actor? And I said, well, yes, I do. And they said, well, don't ever take any more extra work or supporting artist work. Um, this is to say nothing rude about supporting artists. This is just to say that the industry tends to pigeonhole you one way or the other. And so I never did again. Um, and that was my only extra work. So it's a unique moment, the power of God. And I have to say, um, I think the director must have seen something, because as you say, you get you, you die a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Very unusual for a local um, supporting artist to be hired in London. There's loads of Doctor Who stories where they've gone on location, and I think I can say the Time Warrior, which the film was all done in the north, mm-hmm. and it's all northern extras, and then Iron Grom's men in studio are played by extras that were based in London, and, oh. and they didn't bother with continuity because no. nobody would look, for example. Mm-hmm. So, uh, And you get a lovely close-up when Kroll rises and you yes. all run away. All run away, yes, they do indeed, yep, that's right, in episode three or whatever, yeah. Yeah, so you, I, think, I think Norman Stewart must have taken a shine to you. Well, it, it, was, it was nice of him. I must say, I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. And uh, so do you, do, as, as a supporting artist, with the cast sort of friendly? Is there, was there a demarcation? Uh, sort of. I didn't really know about the demarcation, really, although I knew that, obviously, the, um, the, the, the stars would go off and change somewhere other than us, and we were sitting on buses, and they possibly had a caravan or two. Um, I remember jo- I was watching John Abeneri, who played the, um, the, the kind of high priest. I thought he was particularly lovely, because he was green like us. Mm. And he, and he didn't, I mean, seeing, if it was just our screen and then the stars weren't, you'd kind of feel second class, as indeed the swamp is our, you know, the kind of Native American <laughs> parable of the play, of the, of the story. But John and Carl Rigg, too, mm. um, they were absolute troopers in the sense of, no, we'll get green, slap it on, no kind of, uh, no order of being done, no pulling rank. They were lovely. Really nice. Well, listeners to this podcast will know that I have a special affection for John Abenary. Yeah. He has a running theme in my one-man show. Oh, right, OK. he was an actor, one of the first actors I ever spotted in things. And mm. so I'm always after a John Abenary story. Well, so he's a lovely good. man. Good. No, that, that, that's the only story I got, really. He was yeah, a lovely, good. generous, kind man. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm, there are lots of things I didn't know about um, protocol and who you talk to and who you don't. I was just a guy who chatted to anyone. Um, obviously, we'd be a bit careful with Tom and Mary Tan because, you know, they are... The kind of stars you you think, and you've got to you know uh, sp- speak when you're spoken to is probably the kind of rule when you're starting out uh, then. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the rest of them, they were lovely. Glyn Owen, um, <laughs> plays the gun dealer, uh, forever chewing grass. Yes. <laughs> I just I mean even I even like a real novice I started to think Glyn, do you have to chew grass in every shot? But um, he's no longer with us. Um, and I worked with him uh, as a as a as an actor. Um, only about it was a lifetime later, but actually it was only uh, autumn eighty two. Only four years later, at Hampstead Theatre in a play called The Hard Shoulder, um, when I was named most promising newcomer, which was very nice. So that was quite a journey in four years. Mm. But, but Glyn was there again. I was trying to work out what Glyn's accent was in this. It was I think it was kind of Irish American. Mm. Don't know what he was. He used to go for these kind of exotic noises, um, <laughs> and he's a complete uh, one-off Glyn Owen. He was um, he was a lovely man, but he was. 
you can imagine, you know, that he could be um, quite lively after closing hours. Yeah. Well, I always had him down as an actor that always acted with a glass of whiskey in his hand. Yes. And I, and yes. I thought maybe that's what the grass was. Yes. <laughs> maybe it was, yeah. <laughs> it was. There wasn't any whiskey on Delta yeah. Ragnar. Yeah. He, he used to smoke little um, cheroots in, yeah. the, in, the, in the play, The Hard Shoulder. So he, he has, he always, he's always got some kind of a vice as a prop. Yeah. He? If chewing grass is a vice, maybe yeah. a special grass. That's on Delta, Delta Magna, Magna grass. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's strong. <laughs> And so you've very graciously um, done your homework and you've watched The Power of Crowell for this. Well, well I watched it because, I mean, actors... It, it, it honestly isn't an affectation. When you've been doing it, you know, 30-plus years, um, and you work, uh, unlike a, a proper job, where perhaps you, uh, if one's in a job for a number of years, you really get to know people and, you, of course, never forget names and you get to know them very well. We're obliged to make new friends, well, make new acquaintances very quickly and then, and then move on to the next project. Uh, and which can, which meet, but you've also, when you meet them, you've got to cut quite quickly to a level of camaraderie if you're suddenly playing somebody's husband or somebody's brother or somebody's son. So it's got to be kind of made up intimacy quite quickly. Uh, so I thought, how much do I remember of this experience? I thought I'd watch it to try and bring, bring some bit back, that's all. So yeah, I did my homework. Very nice. And do you, I, I suspect most of your memories revolve around trying to get green makeup off. Yeah, a lot of them. They, they, they took us to an air force base afterwards, and there were just showers. But it was oil based because we had some. Uh, we had a rain shot, at least one, so it shouldn't mustn't run off in the rain, obviously. And, mm-hmm. and the swamp itself was a little bit on the damp side. They had dry foots, which the humans. We were kind of the wet foots, really, most of the time. Um, so being oil based, it doesn't, it doesn't take to just a, a, you know, a gentle you know, sponge. <laughs> you had to scrub for half an hour, and you'd wonder at the end of the shoot day, they're going to slap more on in about eleven hours' time. What's the point? But then you go, well, all my clothes will be green if I don't. So every day we go to the showers at this Air Force base and try and get it all off and fail. Have you seen the extras on the DVD? I saw one or two. Uh, I saw the, uh, the documentary which, in which I was interviewed. <laughs> I, saw, I saw some fantastic black and white um, studio outtakes when people start burst out laughing and make the, the, the blooper oh, yes, blue yeah, yeah, That was good. I haven't seen them all, but I thought I'd better just... No, I just wondered if you'd watched your interview. I'm afraid that's, I did, yeah. yeah, 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 I did. Yeah, there it was. Um, and the one shot of me fast asleep, remember, leaning against a teepee wrapped in a blanket. And that is kind of filming. I mean, filming is, you know, um, a lot of waiting around, and suddenly, instantly, you're now on, kind of thing. And sometimes, if I wasn't in a shot, it's because I just died, and I couldn't be seen in the next one. They had worked out some of it. Mm-hmm. Or he was the one guarding him, so it's got to be him again, you know. It did yeah. kind of matter. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was late September... We weren't wearing a lot, and those blankets were handy. It looked lovely. I was thinking about the, about the choice of the marshes. A, where swamp is, but B, I was actually in Suffolk last weekend. The, um, the landscape, kind of the landscape line, is conveniently flat for matting in mm. a giant monster over the top. Because when you look back at it afterwards, you see crawl appearing above the skyline. And yeah. If you got a nice, if you had mountains, that'd be quite awkward to cut yeah. out. But a nice flat scape. Yeah. Bring on the monster, put him in later. It's generally considered quite a duff effect, that, because the, the film cameraman said he was given the wrong advice and sort of shut off shut off the top part of the film. Actually, if he'd left it on, they could have done a more sophisticated cut. Didn't know that. But I, th- I think, apart from the, the scenes with the mud huts where his tentacles are coming up, I actually think it's a very good model and, and generally quite nicely matched to the, yeah. to the film. Work. Yeah, it, it's not bad. Um, it just, if, if you were there, I, mean, I could remember the sky. <laughs> yeah. And we were all looking at an emptiness and suddenly to see this enormous thing. It um, was different. And, the, and I was, I'm very pleased that you've uh, agreed to, to the interview for many reasons, but Power of the Crawl, I have to say, was, Power of the Crawl was one that I was worried about because 
I'm afraid to say you're one of the very few surviving, surviving. people from it. Okay. Um, because and certainly when they the DVD, they didn't even do a making of because there weren't enough, enough. people. Really. Um, so I don't know what it is about uh, the air on Delta Magna, but uh, it's strange mm. sort of watching back something from all those years It is, ago. it is. I mean, it brings back stuff. Like I remember um, that chanting of Kroll, Kroll, that seemed to go on for uh, the night shoots. I do remember them and occasionally being able to find tea somewhere. And then, but you're working through the night uh, for the sacrifice of Romana. Uh, and we were endless takes of us shouting Kroll, Kroll, and chanting and waving our spears from every conceivable angle and for really quite a long time. Uh, I remember hearing for the first time, because they were looking for a kind of misty effect, and they had smoke machines to do it, because there wasn't enough on snake marshes that night. And then I think I heard someone shout, hold the fog. <laughs> and my, my newcomer head kind of went, hold the fog. That's, that's a challenge. And you realise <laughs> what it means is switch off the smoke yeah. machine, but that's, hold the fog is more economical and the quicker thing to say. Yeah. So I was, I was kind of watching... I didn't go to drama school, and, and all my all through these 35 years, I've been just trying to watch and learn as I go along, just trying to pick it up and, and see what, what happens. Both, it's, it's gradually happening in the industry anyway, or no, quite quickly happening, is that actors are becoming more technically aware, and crews are becoming more and more artistically aware. There was a great dividing line way back then, I think, and, and apart from union demarcation, you don't touch the sparks if you're a chippy, whatever it is. Um, crews, of course, have got smaller, and there are more all-rounders there. But also, there's a, you do get you get offers now of what about you know from, from the sound department? Wouldn't it be better if and and all sorts of people chipping in, and likewise actors. I think it's part of our job. Are aware of the technical you know requirements of a scene. You suddenly go, I'm not going to go over there because, or I will do this to facilitate the next shot. Well, you must have learned pretty quickly because, as you say, the most promising newcomer. What four four years later in the theatre, and mm. you know your your sort of your next foray into science fiction wasn't that long after the Power of Crow, and you're the lead baddie in uh, Sapphire and Steel, which is <laughs> something that uh, uh, haunted certainly my childhood. I bet a lot of the listeners' childhoods because you were the shape in uh, Sapphire and Steel. Yeah, I mean that was uh, yeah. Doctor Who was my first national television appearance. Uh, as a sporting artist, and then I think I'm right in saying that Sapphire Steel was my first role as an actor. Rang up, told my mum, uh, and she was delighted, and then I had to break the news that actually I haven't got a face. So she's thinking, what kind of a premiere, what kind of an entree is this into the showbiz when your face is pretty much what you're selling? Um, and you haven't got one. <laughs> so I wasn't sure if that was a very auspicious start to the career. I did get a nice, a nice scene in, uh, I think it was in four parts, at the start of the third part, I think. But there were two of us. Bob Hornery yeah. was also the shape. And uh, we had to go and have our masks done, so we were faceless. Bob Hornery is actually one of the few actors that's been Doctor Who and Neighbours, because he's Carl Kennedy's dad in Neighbours. <laughs> uh, is, is he Australian? Yeah. Oh, no, that's coming back now. Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah. We, we were both sent along to have these masks done, and that was, you know, slaps, straws up your nose, pretty much, and just everything covered for a claustrophobically long 20 minutes or whatever it was at some, some mask shop. The smell wasn't great either. And you had to keep still, but it would crack. It's a very odd experience. Um, I don't know if you've seen the David Bowie uh, documentary, Cracked Actor. He has one made for his um, 1974 show, Diamond Dogs Tour. So he can use it for, I think it's for, to, uh, he's got it in front of him. It's not for the song Cracked Actor itself, it's for the song Time, is it? Anyway, he's got his face on a mask, he puts it in front of him for a bit and does a whole kabuki thing. Anyway, you see him wearing one, and they, they really are 
really quite sort of frightening if you're moderately claustrophobic. Mm-hmm. Do you realise if somebody stops up those two air holes, I'm dead. Yeah. You're slightly powerless. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's, uh, it's I mean, the, the, the sapphires, when I've said to a couple of people that I'm talking to you, they're like, oh, the shape. It's certainly something that people remember. Yeah, yeah well, I think it worked great front on. Sideways on, you could, of course, see that it's covering, you can see a jawline. I mean, I'd, in my head, I had a completely flat face, and of course, they weren't going to take off my nose and chin. Sure. Um, but some of the stuff, um, there was some, some, it was blue screen. You, you'd be standing, they'd, be, they'd put you in later because the whole shape could move between photographs. And so his face would appear in a, in a photograph. Uh, and so you, you were then acting, standing on a rostrum in front of a blue screen and they put the photograph in later. And you absolutely had to hit your mark, stay there, and then do a turn, but turn kind of as if you were, it had a pole right down your middle. So turn and rotate rather than just turn. Mm. Lots of very precise stuff. Again, this is... This is learning. When I said before I'm learning as I go along, it's particularly television technique uh, and, and what the camera sees and then what you think you're doing and then what the camera's seeing are very different things, as, mm. as, as you know. Yeah, you, know yeah. you, you think you're achieving a marvellous effect, but actually you've got your back to something. <laughs> it's actually, there's, one, there's that shot that you, I think you're describing, which is one on the stairs, where you turn your... And the, and the, yes. and the face disappears. It's seamless. It's a fantastic well, effect. Well, that took a lot... Thank, yeah, that took a lot of rehearsal because they kept saying, no, no, don't do it like that. And you think, why? I'm just turning. And then you see it afterwards and go, oh, because the lighting has been very clever. Mm. Whatever it is, yeah. Yeah. No, I... I, I Again, um, David McCallum and uh, Joanna Lumley, working with them, Joanna Lumley was so lovely. Um, she, she, I mean, she said at one point uh, about us, as it were, guests, as opposed to the regulars, you know. She'd say, I mean, you're the actors, we just come in, uh, or I just, I just come in and do my thing, or something. I, she said something very self-deprecating, which was nonsense. Um, and made it just made one feel very relaxed rather than in awe of these. I mean, the man from Uncle, for heaven's sake, mm. and Purdy, for goodness yeah. sake. That's a dream team. Yeah. No, it, it, was, it was tremendous. But let's not underestimate that going from supporting an actor living at home to, you know, guest lead in a television, and then your television career has, has, has brought, uh, you know, been pretty, pretty full on. Where did you, sort of the breaks begin to come? Well, um, you read a lot of interviews, don't you? And everyone says how lucky. They were, but I, I can't think of many, many other words for it. Um, I mean, people do say that luck is where preparation meets opportunity. So uh, you just have to keep doing the work um, at home or whatever, whatever it is you do, and then you hope that when the phone rings, you're ready to do whatever they ask you to do. Uh, I suppose uh, I, I did. Uh, I read French at university, and so my first few uh, television jobs. I was using the French. After Shape in Sapphire and Steel, the same director got me back for a Callan the following year, in 81, when I had to be an Englishman speaking French. And the year after that, I got a job at the Agatha Christie Hour playing a French baddie. And so you use what you've got. You know, it's not enough just to want to be an actor. I'm an actor who can speak French and who can play piano and guitar or something. And my first theatre jobs were as an MD or composer. And then slipped into Stratford East... um, and that's when my agent saw me, and then, of course, your agent starts putting you up for stuff. And then you're just in the game, and your face is on a lottery ball, and sometimes your, you know, your face gets picked out. Number 17, oh, PB, thank you very much. You know, we'll have him. It's, um, it's, once you're in, it's just, you know, well, like you'll know, you know, you're just, you're one of the faces people can look at. And your face, it's a, you have a face that seems to suit itself to being in comedy. You've done a lot mm. of, mm. Uh, and you did... You, you, 
two that transformed because you did um, Tripper's Day that turned into Slinger's, Slinger's Day, Day and yeah. Fresh Fields that turned into French Fields. Yeah, so. I know. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was, I mean, bless Shirley Teese and Thames Television um, for, for some mad reason then, which you can't imagine it would happen now. Uh, I think I'd done done that that Hampstead play I was talking about, which went to the West End, and I'd done a West End job with Peter Ustinov called Beethoven's Tenth, a play he'd written, probably his last play that he was in. Uh, I didn't have much to do in it, but I was at the start of the second half, and I loved, I used to wait for the, the call for the second half, which was, beginners please, Mr Bird and Mr Eustonov. Oh. I thought, I'll have that billing, because <laughs> it's alphabetical. <laughs> I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm keeping that, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> I wanted to record that one. Uh, so I think then when you're kind of in the West End, um, casting directors from TV will come and have a look for you. Um, TV is, is often quite hungry for new, new blood, um, and uh, they were putting on quite a few comedies, sitcoms at Thames at the time. And very, I mean, in very short order, I was in two sitcoms playing utterly different parts. There was some um, sort of nice young son-in-law, Peter, in Fresh Fields, uh, and, but also shop steward Hardy in Tripper's Day. And uh, so I was, I was in Seventh Heaven, really, and, and uh, Thames were... There were a number of series of Fresh Fields, four, I think, uh, and, but then Tripper's Day went out. It was almost while it was going out, I think, that Leonard Rossiter died after playing squash at a heart attack. Uh, and that was, that was shocking, because you'd just been working with him. Uh, and he was, he was... There's a lesson there in, um, in, in, in kind of a famous person who works hard. Because you'd see him... Left-handed, I remember, and uh, you'd see him... He had a reputation for, in inverted commas, being difficult. That was something we would call him. But you'd see quite quickly that he was just... had very high standards and expectations of himself and everybody else. And we did the pilot of, of Tripper's Day. And you'd see him... He'd be having arguments or discussions with the director. You'd see him sitting... While we're having a coffee break, he'd be sitting at, you know, Tripper's rehearsal desk, just furiously rewriting, crossing things out, moving stuff around. And you think, yeah, it's going to be better. Because he'll know. He'll know that if you've got a K in it, if it's got a K in it, it's funny, you know. Or the, 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 the funny word's got to be at the end of the line. Or He'd just rewrite, work really hard. And uh, you can learn a lot from watching people like that. Mm. And the, but then a complete sea change. When he died, the series carried on. It did, had a little pause. And we all thought, OK, well, that was lovely, but there we are. And then, but Brian Cook, who wrote it, had obviously had some more scripts up his sleeve. And uh, Thames thought they thought they could go again. And so they just um, used the same, used the scripts, but we had a new manager, which was Bruce Forsyth, moving into, you know, um, I'm not moving into, because he always had, he was, he's always been an all-rounder, but I don't think he'd done a sitcom before, maybe wrong about that. No, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's an odd thing in his career mm. that sort of stands out a bit, but he's another sort of consummate pro, isn't he? Oh. Yes, he was. Completely different from Leonard, but, but in his own way, utterly. What, what um, I think for... For Tripper's Day, I may be wrong about this, for Tripper's Day filming at Thames on a Sunday night, um, you'd have a warm-up man to get everyone in the mood. It may well have been Bobby Brown. Yes. Anyway, uh, and everyone would, would get cheerful and before the show starts so that the laughter track is kind of nicely oiled. Uh, and then if things break down and you have to shoot the scene again and the audience have seen it and already laughed once, it's, uh, it's nice if they laugh again <laughs> next time round, even though they've seen it all. So... Uh, Bobby was there just to kind of jolly things along, and uh, it's funny in his own right. I got a feeling that Bruce himself did most of the initial warm-up because he's so at home working an audience. 
and they were really up there for it from the very beginning. There's one bit that really tickled me. I, I, it has come out, it must be on the, it's because it's out on DVD now, so it'll be there in one of the episodes. Um, he has one of the, a customer comes in, a, an old lady with um, a few lines, looking for something or can't find or wondering why he's not stocking a particular brand or something. And she's being particularly annoying for him. And after she goes, his reaction, instinctively, he looks straight down the lens and goes, and makes a kind of face. And we all just went, he's looked down the lens. He's broken the fourth wall. You can't do that. But he can. It's Bruce. And that's his kind of instinct, because it's generation game instinct mm. of kind of, you know, what do you think of her? Look at the lot I've got to work with. That's kind of what he was saying. Mm. And we just fell about in the green room. We thought, he's just done it. He's gone and done it. And no <laughs> one said, don't, Bruce. He's just hilarious. <laughs> and he was, he was a joy. We did two, two series with him. Um, some people stayed. Some people moved on. Um, and it was, uh, yeah, it was good fun. Well, and we meet today, we met outside the Globe on a beautiful day, and what a uh, lovely structure, and it's, it's, it's a place, and I, I saw you on stage um, at the Royal Exchange, doing, in Manchester, doing Shakespeare, and Shakespeare seems to be something that, it's a great career, I think, to straddle, you know, doing com- comedy on telly and Shakespeare on, on the stage, that's mm, alright. Mm. Well, yeah, um, I, the, the other big learning thing which crossed my mind when I was talking about learning from Leonard Rossiter was doing Noises Off <clears throat> uh, in the West End uh, in the 80s. Because you do that for a year, and uh, it's, it's a beautiful, brilliantly made gag machine. But you do it for a year, and after about three months, you kind of really peak, and, you're, and then suddenly about four or five months, you go, that laugh's gone. What's happening? And Josephine Tewson, who was fantastic as, as Dottie, uh, the main lady, um, she'd sort of say, darling, um, could you watch from the wings, watch this scene for me, and tell me what's, what I'm doing wrong? Because she'd lost the laugh on, on the sardines, or the news, whatever it was. So she thought... So I'd stand and watch for a few days, and then you go, oh, I see, it's now because maybe without, it's just the timing shifted by a few seconds, or now she's looking at the sardines before she says something, or something's changed. Or, indeed, a fellow actor is doing some ridiculous business behind her. I mean, whatever it is. And you kind of go, I think it might be because of this. And then back you go, and then you try it in, and and maybe, you know, with luck and a fair wind, the, the laugh comes back. And gag doctoring and how comedy works has become a, a real interest of mine. And I think, I think, as it were, the secret of comedy, or the point of comedy, is you've got to be thinking at an appropriate pace for the audience. Um, the whole thing about comedy is you don't do two things at once, because then it's not clean. It's one thing followed by something else. And it doesn't go too fast. It's not too slow, because then the audience is ahead of you, and it's not so fast that the audience don't get. It's just ahead. Uh, and so that kind of comedy training then was translated into the comedy of errors at the Royal Exchange. In a way, it's not such a great jump. I mean, Shakespeare, as I'm discovering, wrote for real people. Um, it's not particularly posh or high-flown, necessarily. And the comedy in the comedy of errors, um, you may well remember when you went to see it, particularly the other Antipholus and his son, I mean, when they had to bang down a door, he used his servant as a human battering man, picked him up, ran at the door sideways with his head hitting the door, thumping the door. Uh, so it was full of kind of shtick, and, and I think I had some dustbin lids, mm. and Adrian Scarborough was the drummer with me. And uh, if you, you can use them on symbols on both sides of somebody's head to, to quite startling comic effect. Um, so I, I don't think um, it's that far, not that big a leap, Shakespeare, really. But you were saying before we started that you've, um, you've been... Your understanding of Shakespeare has, has altered... It has, uh, yeah. I was afraid, like probably most people. I was pretty afraid of it at school. 
uh, and uh, I didn't think as an actor I was up to it. I thought you had to be kind of either have a big voice or be or have a um, be kind of superhuman in your imagination. People like Anthony of Anthony and Cleopatra or Hamlet, they they kind of seem to be bigger than us. But in fact, they're just blokes. Um, and it was working, well, first of all, on the comedy of errors there, I began to get glimmerings of, of, of how perhaps this can be done, because it was a comedy. And then coming here to Shakespeare's Globe, when it was being constructed, I was here doing workshops, um, when just a couple of bays were being built, and we had sort of a scaffolding stage, and we were fooling around. It's been playing Shakespeare here at the Globe, which has shown me that... Um, if you can see everyone, because it's broad daylight in the matinee in the afternoon, and in the evening they have all the house lights on, you can see everyone. In the open air, you suddenly realise that you're talking directly to these people who are listening. And if you're alone on stage, you're not talking to yourself in a moody kind of reverb-laden whisper. You're just talking. Uh, and working at the Globe has just unlocked Shakespearean performance for me. And particularly an interest in how they put on plays then. Because they hadn't all been to university these actors, um, and yet they were able to pull this stuff off, so I'm sure, I'm sure we can. Yeah. And uh, you, you know, you're still working, uh, are there, are there uh, things that you would still like to do as an actor, any, any ambitions that you... you well, uh, interesting, I mean comedy, after Thames lost the franchise, maybe because um, the Prime Minister got upset with their documentary Death on the Rock... Um, or for whatever reason, um, the, the, the plan was to break up ITV into lots of small companies, and then all back together again, <laughs> if you like. Now we've just got ITV again. Um, so I, I kind of, that, was, that was the end of my uh, plug-in to sitcoms. And then in the 90s, um, with alternative comedy and alternative comedians writing their own stuff, there seemed to be less of a place for, shall we say, comedy actors. Um, I have done um, a, a stint, an episode of My Family, which kind of brought back, I thought, brought back sitcom, and sitcom has kind of come back. Um, I feel, I haven't done much comedy lately on television. Uh, quite a lot of comedy here at the Globe with Merry Wise of Windsor, uh, maybe As You Like It's a comedy, uh, but um, not so much on telly, and I, I think it's time for a bit more comedy. I quite fancy it. Wonderful. Well, um, you know, it's very um, good of you to come and talk about your only piece of um, extra work. Uh, do you have any... Have you, and you've scribbled down loads of notes as well, so is there anything we haven't covered from your notes about um, the power of Kroll? I was just thinking about that. Well, I, mean, I did get to tie both of them up because I was tying up Romano with ropes, and that was great to get close to Mary Tam. I do remember something that Tom Baker said. I overheard him having a discussion, a bit like Leonard Rossiter, you know, th th these people who are then leading roles in, the, in a show. I mean, Tom Baker part in Doctor Who was beyond that of any one director because he, you know, he, as it were, carried the flame. And I remember overhearing him say when they were having a discussion about something and maybe they were hoping they could get away with something because the hovercraft wasn't behaving or it was about to rain or something wasn't quite right. I remember hearing him say, if we don't believe in this stuff, how can we expect the audience to? And, or something like that, it's a paraphrase. Uh, in other words, we must take this utterly seriously and we can't just go that's going to have to do for today because we're losing the light, whatever it is. And I thought, well, that's, that's terrific. I mean, he's a proper actor, Tom, mm. and, and properly cared. When we got to Television Centre, which I'd never, I'd never been to before, I mean, it's where Top of the Pops filmed, for goodness sake, and there's that, that circle underneath where you just get permanently lost. 
because it was built and it, you know the heritage building. I'm not sure not sure what it is now because the BBC have nominally left it, but the corridors of the BBC, and then the corridors of the set we had, which is all kind of grey. Um, I don't know what it was, plasterboard, plywood, tin foil, goodness knows. But I was just forever walking down grey corridors, both on set and off. And my memory of, the, of, of Television Centre was um, kind of hugely glamorous, but kind of sort of neon-lit, fluorescent and grey. I mean, it, this is supposed to be the kind of factory where dreams are made. <laughs> and, but of course, the, the set inside the refinery at Delta Magna was, of course, just grey and silver. And, and they were all wearing grey uniforms. And uh, it was, yeah. And we were working in the evenings as the outtakes show. It was like nine o'clock at night when we were, they were doing that scene. And you come out blinking from this sort of fluorescent, timeless factory, really. It felt like a factory. It's very odd. But I felt immensely privileged to be walking on places where, you know, the two Ronnies were just down there and Top of the Pops was just there. All these pictures on the walls. You thought, you know, that's the future. Well, brilliant. Well, um, thanks so much yeah. for, for giving us your time. Um, we, we ask you to nominate a charity because, uh, obviously, this is uh, free for all involved. Mm. So what's your charity, Philip? My charity, I think, would be the Woodland Trust. They uh, try and raise money. They're, uh, they're not publicly funded. Um, and they try and buy bits of woodland when they come up for sale to restore them to uh, native woodlands, which helps the birds, bees, insects which live there, helps the landscape and they manage their woods so they are the kind of living living areas Lovely, and I'll, I'll do a link in my outro um, okay. and we, we are together actually because we were, this meeting was facilitated by Nicholas Pegg who tells me you have your own fandom because you're, you're a bit of a Bowie fan is that right? Oh, huge uh, yes, it was, it was a joy to meet um, Nicholas because um, because he has a friend, we have a friend in common who was in here at the Globe with us, in Mary Wise of Windsor, um, Barnaby Edwards. A Dalek, no less. Right, yes, exactly, a Dalek. Um, and uh, so uh, when I heard that, that, that Nick was a... Uh, I, I didn't know he was such an expert. And, in fact, went to the signing of his, um, the last edition of his, of his book, which was the fifth edition, I think, having bought the fourth myself. Uh, and the, the, the kind of outro of that was, you know, let's hope we hear from David soon... And then now he's brought out another album. Nick's going to have to produce a sixth edition and review all that as well. So it never stops for him. I think it was a lot to do with the V&A exhibition just now and the documentary that's been on. And uh, he's an absolute source of information. He's a, mind, he's a mind, minefield? No. A mind. Just a, a mind. mind. Just he's a minefield of information. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Tell he's, him that. He's got lots of information, but some of it's very dangerous. <laughs> that's right. It probably is too. <laughs> so you get the fan thing then. Oh, huge! Oh, come on! Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, you do, but I'll tell you what, though. Interestingly, then I mean this, this um, because I've had this long discussion. Because obviously Nick's younger than me, and I first saw David Bowie in 1973 at the Norwich Theatre Royal, and was a huge fan of his. Actually, I bought Space Oddity in '69. But then when he got to 1983, um, he did this tour sponsored by Levi's, and then brought out a song called Blue Jean. I began to smell something. And I've been puzzling over it and arguing with Nick, because, of course, Nick loves his 90s work, and I kind of, I'd, I'd, I'd gone off it by then. I came back to his um, heathen and reality I adore. Um, I like very much. Uh, but actually, in the documentary he put together, Trevor Nelson made a very, made a very, very good um, you know, comment. He said that, uh, no, Nelson George, not Trevor Nelson, Nelson George, the commentator, said that actually there were those people who kind of 
wanted, as it were, wanted Bowie for themselves. And when he went mainstream in 83, they kind of got a bit, a bit upset. So I think that there is part of fandom which uh, kind of has, feels a very close connection with what you're, what you're a fan of. But if too many people get onto it, you start to feel it's not yours anymore. So basically you're saying you've gone through periods of going, it's not as good as it used to be, and now everybody else likes it, yeah. I don't like it anymore. I, 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 neither of those things have ever happened with Doctor <laughs> Who fans. I do, with, nobody listening will identify with that. Uh, well, the show started 50 years ago this year, which is why we're here. The day after Kennedy's assassination was the start of Doctor Who. Was it? Yeah. So, um, so what's your message to the listening Doctor Who fans? Oh, heavens. I think it's... it's I can't wait for the next Doctor. Um, it may be the age I am, but I, I, I'm ready for a Doctor with... I know they're all... I know the Doctor is very old, but uh, I'd like to see um, a, a, a regeneration in which he has this kind of gravitas of infinite wisdom. Um, I get boyish, boyish enthusiasm and I get energy. Um, I have worked with, I've crossed paths with Peter Capaldi just, and I think I think it's a fantastic choice, and I shall be definitely tuning in to watch to watch his first go round and and, and stay with it, um, because I think he's got something quite, he is very slightly otherworldly anyway when you meet him, and uh, I can't wait. Wonderful. Well, um, Philip Bird, uh, it's been great. Thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. Brilliant. That was great. Thank you. No. You can No, that was wonderful. My thanks to Philip uh, and indeed to Nick Pegg, Nicholas Pegg, for putting us in touch. Philip's charity is the Woodland Trust, www.woodlandtrust, all one word, .org.uk. Even if you can only spare a few pennies, if everybody does that, uh, a good cause will have money raised for it and that's what this podcast is all about it's also about acquiring actors for my big bag of actors that I now carry around with me um, so thanks to Philip what a gentleman he was and I very much enjoyed his company uh, normal service will be resumed and we'll get on with the who's round schedule as planned uh, imminently but until then uh, have fun and goodbye Dear Diary, it's me again, Benny. Have you missed me? I've been so busy recently. You know, saving the world a few times, that sort of thing. This is a truth. Ruth! This is Ruth! a truth. Where are you, this Ruth? This is a truth. Jack? Now, Professor Bernie Summerfield who's running away from her responsibilities and clinging on to adventure because she dare not settle down, claims the artefact might be some kind of suit of armour, suggesting that the Saravasians were around eight feet tall with slightly bulbous heads and skinny arms. Yes, uh... Shepton, are you all right? The station want us to keep transmitting no matter what. The planet could explode and they still want us on air. You understand? I've never seen fluorescent peacocks before. I want tomorrow evening to be the most wonderful formal gathering I've ever hosted. I've invited the great and the good of Moros and beyond, of course. A true carnival in the oldest sense of the word. And all the while outside the gates, a nation burns.
Welcome to the White Rabbit. What will it be? You can start by locking and bolting the doors. Then everyone in here can keep real calm. Listen, son, I've been on Legion since your grandpappy was a boy. And if you think you can come in here... Oh, my word! In about ten minutes, there's a cybersaur gonna come in through that there door, asking if you've seen a stranger tonight. Someone you've never seen before. Maybe someone fitting my description. The brimstone kid? You're quick, Bob. I'll give you that. So, you're famous. King Theon at new service. Ding dong. I'm sorry? Ancient ritual greeting of my people. Then, ding dong. Did I do it right? I should hope so. Sire, this is the Sky Witch. Call me Benny. You don't get a ding dong. Uh, take no notice of her. It's a trap. She's ensnared you, and now she intends to kill you. Everyone knows that she is the source of the sickness. Now, I think this might be it. The end. For all of us. <laughs> <laughs>